All right, First Peter, First Peter chapter three. Continuing our study in First Peter, and uh, we're going to pick it up in verse eight. We'll make a few introductory comments. Uh, pointed out last time that he said about five things there in verse seven for husbands. He said, number one, dwell with them according to knowledge. Number two, giving honor unto the wife. Number three, as unto the weaker vessel. Number four, as being heirs together of the grace of life. Number five, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, we're not going to go back and go through all the stuff we've covered. However, when you're reading your Bible, read it with some common sense. Now, I didn't say apply common sense first, but read it with common sense. So when you come to verse 8 and he says, finally, well, if you read on, you know he's not closing out this letter that he's written them this epistle. And once again, I would endeavor to put your mind into the frame of mind that's consistent with what is going on here. And that is God is sending his communication to his people through these chosen men, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And someone's writing it down at their voice and it's being passed on. Now, I, un, I believe in and understand things like manuscript evidence. I've had the training in both the New Testament Greek and the Old Testament Hebrew and spent a lot of time, you know, collating stuff, translating stuff for the sake of, of uh, exploring the Word of God, but mostly for the sake of demonstrating how that at certain times in history, God has preserved his word. (coughs) Excuse me. And so as we come to this book, I think it's always important when you come to your Bible to just, even if it takes just a few seconds, 10, 20, 30 seconds, whatever, put your mindset into what you are reading. You're not reading just a book. You're not just reading, you know, some tradition. God, God intends it to be for us the same way it was for those who read it 2,000 years ago. And that is fresh from him and communicating his mind and his heart to us. God's heart, God's mind, okay? So when we're reading it, if we put ourselves into that mindset, it's totally different. It's not a religious textbook. It's not a religious doctrinal book. Now, through the Institute, for years and years and years, we taught all kinds of courses. We taught primarily books of the Bible, verse by verse. We laid a foundation of moderate dispensation so you could understand your Bible and and make sure you didn't try to practice something as if it was to you when it was only for you. If you picked up the books of Moses, Exodus through Deuteronomy, and tried to apply those to you directly, there's parts in there that would get you kind of messed up. So we know that when the Lord Jesus Christ came and you got the, the cross of Calvary in the margin of my Bible, many times when I come across those passages in the Old Testament where it's prophetic, for example, places in Psalm 22 and all that, I draw me just a little hill with a cross on top and one on each side to remind me that's a crucifixion passage. And that was a dividing point. It, that little hill that I draw on, on the left of it is Old Testament on the right's New Testament. It's what they call commonly in 
history and all that sort of thing, a watershed moment. Well, the cross of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, is a watershed moment in the history of God's economy, not just man. So it's a watershed moment in that it was leading up to it. Now, the Old Testament saints, they had no idea what was happening because even those who knew the scriptures when Jesus walked the earth didn't identify what he was doing as the Lamb of God till after it was over. You say, well, John the Baptist had a vision. He did. The Lord put it in his mind. And Simon Peter had a revelation that he was the Son of God. He said, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you. However, they were not saved looking forward to the cross. They were saved looking to God and doing what he told them to do for salvation. Offer that lamb. Believe in him. And then as, as they would believe in God and as they walked with God, then, of course, that was going towards their eternal inheritance, not just their eternal destiny. So I said all that to say that when we come to these, and he says, finally, be ye all of one mind, verse 8, he's about to give them some things that have to do with personal relationships. So it's not finally as in the end of the letter, because we're at chapter 3, down at verse 8, but he, we have another couple whole chapters that go, and then, there, of course, there's a second epistle that he sends out. So when we get to this, he's been talking about relationships and roles, R-O-L-E-S, how we relate to others, what we do in our daily life. <clears throat> it's easy as a child of God, as a Bible believer, to become somewhat religious in, in this sense. We practice Many of the things that we know are right, believe are right, they're ecclesiastical, that is, they have to do with church and that sort of thing. But we sometimes are tempted to let slip the personal relationship rules that God laid down. And those rules didn't go away when Jesus Christ came and grace was instituted. They actually got larger. Uh, they became more narrow in how far off the path you can walk. Because God said, now that I've given you the Holy Spirit to seal you and to indwell you, and I've given you the grace that's imparted through the Holy Spirit, I expect more of you. Now you can't do that by merely pulling yourself up by your bootstraps in a spiritual, religious sense. So when we read these things, it's all predicated upon the fact that we need the Holy Spirit to help us do it, but we have to actively submit to the Holy Spirit. Active submission and passive submission can be viewed different ways, but I'm going to give you the one that, to me, makes it really simple. Let's say that there's a swimming pool or a body of water, and you're sitting in a chair, and someone says, even the Lord says, get in that body of water. Well, if you sit in that chair and two people come along, two big old burly fellows, they pick up the chair and throw you in, chair and all. You submitted in that you didn't jump up and run out of the chair and run for your life. You submitted passively. You let someone else throw you in the water. This is what Jonah was trying to get them to do. What he wanted them to do, as one fellow said, he wanted to commit suicide, but he wanted someone else to do the killing. That's passive. Active submission is if you stood by there. And someone with authority, the Lord, for example, or if you're in the military, you're, you know, a commanding, leading officer, 
said jump in the water and you jump in that's active so we get our orders from the lord we get our direction from the holy spirit from the word and even from the chain of command in our life but we have to actively submit so he says finally be ye all <laughs> so it's a be thing not just a do thing be ye all how many of us all be ye all. Is it personal? Yes, yeah, you. Be you all. Be ye all. Of one mind. That doesn't mean you're all going to like your eggs cooked the same way. It doesn't mean you're all going to like the coffee or your tea the same way or even want coffee or tea. It doesn't mean that. What's he talking about? Watch. Be all of one mind. How you think about people. How you think about life. Be all of one mind. Watch. Having compassion one of another now you have one mind about the lord jesus christ and his lordship okay he says having compassion one of another compassion uh, you don't need a greek or hebrew dictionary to figure this one out the word passion how you feel about things what moves you calm a common passion have compassion meaning you're able to feel what that person's feeling now, the average person today in the Western world, whether it be in the United States or other Western countries, uh, they can become passionate with someone if they're mad at the government, if they're anti-traffic laws, if they hate paying their taxes, if they hate rules, okay? That's not compassion. Compassion is when you feel for someone. Compassion is when you are... You, you have the same heart or mind about what that person's. So he said, we weep with them that weep, Paul said. Now, <clears throat> when we think about this, he said, love as brethren. The thing about the body of Christ is you don't choose who gets saved. You don't choose what their background is. You don't choose what their personality is. The most amazing thing about the body of Christ, and this is why the Lord Jesus Christ said, if you have love one to another, talking about believers, not to your earthly family, you have love one to another, by this shall men know that you're my disciples. Why is that? Because that love is not based on common hobbies. It's not based on common habits. It's not based on even having common homes or houses. Okay? It's not based on all kind of common things, not, not even common hopes as in the world hopes, not common hates as in the world hates. So what the Lord's doing is he says, you want to love as brethren. Now, I've always believed since I got saved, started reading my Bible, that you start with God's examples and you work outward, not start with the outward work inward. Let me give you an example. Okay. There's a lot of dysfunctionality is, the, is one of the modern words, okay, widely in use. Dysfunction. In other words, it's not functioning right. <laughs> the motor on your car is, is dysfunctioning if the firing order is messed up, okay? Or the fuel injection is messed up, things like that. So one of the things that we find is dysfunction. So we're not to, to treat the brethren the way we might have treated our brothers or sisters growing up. That might have been a good thing, but it might not. Okay? 
Now, for example, one of the hardest things is to understand what it means to love as brethren in the Bible sense. So in the Bible sense, we're to love them as brethren because they're a brother in Jesus Christ, they're a sister in Jesus Christ. Also, there's come times, difficult times, when if a brother or sister walks disorderly, as Paul calls it, then there has to be a lack of fellowship. And that lack of fellowship, the intention, isn't for us to feel like we're doing better or holier. It's to help that person go, wait a minute, I'm off track, or that person and I would be having fellowship. And as much as painful as it is, I've seen it where it had to be done. And thankfully, several times it came out really good. Okay? Because it's just a matter of, of helping any of us at any given time to, it's like a, what they call a wake-up call. So he says, love as brethren. Now, the Holy Spirit of God will help you do that if you'll desire to do it. I think it's important for people to say, do I have an attitude towards that person? Brother or sister in Christ, do I have that attitude that God said love as brethren? I want to read the whole statement because there's more going, but we'll kind of pull them together. It says, be pitiful. He didn't say for you to go around moping and be pitiful like the southern term would be here in the United States. You know, oh, he's just, he just pitiful. In other words, no, be full of pity. Pity's a good thing done right. And notice how God gives us these statements to put them all together. If he only gave us one of them, we would end up focused on that. But he said, be of one mind, have compassion, Love his brethren, be pitiful. It's important to have pity. It's important to show pity when it's time. There are times in your Bible when he said, don't show any mercy. And those were, those were rough times and the outcome was really rough. But there's also times when God would have people show pity. God shows pity. It's a good thing he does. Mankind would have been wiped off the face of the earth and the children of Israel, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> would have definitely been wiped off the face of the earth. There was a time when these two women, and this is in 1 Kings 3 if you want to write it down. Uh, there were two harlots that came unto the king. And basically they said, you know, we each had a child and uh, the, the famine was on. And so they, they agreed to... Uh, <laughs> This is, this is bad, okay? It's, it's scary. She said, My Lord, I, had, I and this woman dwell in one house. I was delivered a child with her in the house. It came to pass the third day after I was delivered that this woman was delivered also, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. <coughs> and this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. In other words, she rolled over on him and smothered it. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thine handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son and the dead is thy son. <clears throat> and this said, No, but the dead is thy son. The living is my son. Thus they spake before the king. Then said the king, The one saith, This is my son that liveth, and thy son is dead. The other saith, Nay, but thy son is dead, and my son is living. And the king said, Bring me a sword. 
And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two and give half to the one, half to the other. Then spake the woman whose living child was unto the king. For her bowels yearned upon her son. In other words, in her, in her heart, in her gut. It tore her up to think about that. She said, O oh, oh my Lord, give her the living child and no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. A bitter nasty spirit. Then the king answered and said, give her the living child and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. Who? The one whose heart was grieved and said, no, I'll give up my child. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged and they feared the king for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. And you see what happened was one of them understood pity on the other, and, and he judged rightly. Now, be pitiful. Now watch. Be courteous. One of the basic definitions of courteous is to have court-like manners. Many of y'all have heard me mention this before in our teachings. Court-like, not as in when you went to court and you were facing charges or you went to traffic court. Court as in royalty as in a king's court court-like manners you know good manners are a good thing jc penny a noted christian from many many years ago said that good manners are made of petty sacrifices little sacrifices little small good manners are made of small sacrifices good manners are important it is not a badge of honor bible believer to have poor manners i understand that many of us you know, we came up under dock and, and one of the things that earmarked some of those things was maybe a lack of manners. And it, was, it almost became that if you had manners, there was something wrong with you and you were slick and smooth and, and you were of the devil. But that's not true. In fact, if you'll go and read the biographies of most of those men of God that God used, they had good manners. Now their preaching was tough. And when they dealt with wicked men, it was tough. But they had good manners. You're to have good manners. You're to be courteous. Now, as we go down through this, so there he tells us to be. Look, be of one mind. Having compassion. Now, each of these, honestly, could and should be a message all in itself throughout the given year. Okay? It should in a, in a local church. But in a Bible teaching con context, we're pointing out the fact that these things are to be put together. Be ye of one mind, having compassion, one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Now, verse 9, he's going to enter into some knots. Okay, so no, now watch. So there's some things that we do, that we pursue, is how I think of it. We pursue them. We make it a standard, we make it a goal, we make it something that we have decided is right before God because he told us to do it. And we are that way, whether it matters to anybody else or not, even to other Christians. I, I am very, very disturbed by Christians who think it's, even in preaching, now look, in preaching, sometimes we are confrontational and I, I don't hesitate when it's needed. But our preaching is not supposed to be discourteous. By the way, he said, be, be uh, courteous. man wrote a book 
on, on good leadership, and one of the chapters was called Communication is a Courtesy. It is discourteous for us not to communicate properly. Fellas, it's discourteous to come home from work and your spouse, your wife, say, well, how was your day? Fine. What went on? It was good. All those one-word answers because you're too lazy to answer. Now, boy, if you were talking about footy, if you were talking about uh, basketball, if you were talking about sports, if you were talking about woodworking, just you could name anything. And may I say, ladies, that it's courteous to choose your communication. The modern phrase is TMI, too much information. By the way, you know, there's a sense in which people have today have, feel so comfortable putting out too much information about their own relationships as husband and wife and what goes on in the home. That's not, that's not courteous. That's putting somebody in a bad situation. I think you get the idea that in the ministry, as, a, as pastors, etc., whatever you end up doing, that these kind of teachings are there to help you, and throughout a year or a situation, you would deal with some of them. I don't know if you truly you know, want to preach a whole message on compassion, though it wouldn't be wasted, or on love as brethren. That would be several times a year, and be courteous. Now, verse 9 is a continuation of the thought. There's a colon at the end of verse 8. So the sentence moves on. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. Now, this is something that goes against human nature. It's a human response, okay, to render evil for evil. Now, you might not call it that. You might call your part evil, say. You say, well, they did evil and I was just, no, no, don't render evil for evil. It's not, especially in the New Testament, God didn't say eye for an eye. He didn't. Uh, Simon Peter had a problem with it. Some of the disciples had a problem with it. We all potentially do, especially if we are sheepdogs by nature. A sheepdog by nature protects the sheep and takes care of the wolf. But this rendering evil for evil, look, or railing for railing is something that we've got to deal with. We're not to rail on things. It's so popular today that even if you're on the so-called conservative or the what they call the right side of things, to rail. But they don't call it railing. They call it exposing, you know, and warning. But a lot of it's just railing. It's disrespectful. It calls dignities by names that they wouldn't want their own so-called leaders to be called by those names and treated in that manner. Child of God, you got to keep your nose off the TV and your, your ears out of the radio and the internet. It is contagious. And it's contagious because it's easy. It's super easy to get like this. It is super easy. Just as easy as what they used to say, falling off a log, okay? It's as easy as falling off a log to rail and render evil for evil. And so, as is the case with so many things, we have to beware. Now, let me say, I'm going to put this in here. When you're teaching and preaching the Bible, 
uh, even if it's within your home context as leader of the home or as a mother to your children. Understand that these are not do's and don'ts. These are actions and attitudes that we say to ourselves, I'm not going to render evil for evil, so I'm going to have to get some grace from God. I'm not going to rail for rail, so I've got to get some grace from God. Okay? And so he'll give us a not, and then he'll give us a do. For contrarywise, bless, but contrarywise, blessing. So contrarywise means you're going to take the opposite approach to it, the opposite wisdom, contrarywise. You're going to come at it from a whole different angle. Contrarywise, blessing. This is amazing, the rest of this verse. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Now that blessing is not always earthly. And it's not going to be from the person who rendered evil or railed upon thee. Okay? <clears throat> he said, but, you ought to circle that. I, one of the things I like is, is that God teaches us many times through a contrast. He uses contrast, comparison, and repetition. The book of Proverbs is a great example of teaching things. In, in everyday life, it's contrast, but... Nevertheless, okay, it's comparison. This is as this or like this. And then it's repetition. He says it over and over. The book of Proverbs is obviously meant for reading, especially now when God gave it to us in chapters, 30 chapters, 31 chapters, and a day for a chapter for each day of the month. That's pretty cool. And you'll hear the same thing repeated. Why? Because it's Contrast, comparison, and repetition. But contrary-wise, blessing. So we begin and set out to train our mind. Uh, look ahead a few verses at chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise. You know, those that live in the U.S. of A., are big to think if you're supposed to arm yourself, it has to do with some kind of weapon, a gun, you know, or knife or club. Watch. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. So, so much of this is about our thinking, our attitude. You can use the word properly, our philosophy. Now, it's used as a warning by Paul in another spot. That kind of philosophy is like, you know, Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, and, and the Easterners, and all that kind of stuff. You know, dog eat dog. That, that's a philosophy. You know, don't get mad, get even. That's a philosophy. That's a philosophy that doesn't fit in verse 9. Okay? But contrarywise, blessing. So you train yourself to, be, to bless, to give back a blessing, to say, thank you. I'll pray about that. I'm praying for you. It doesn't always make the other person. And, and listen, you can't be contrarywise blessing and be sarcastic about it. That isn't going to work. Because you're not really blessing. You're trying to be a smart aleck. Trying to be cheeky. Okay? 
but con- compare this with how the world thinks. And he says, but contrary wise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. So God wants to give you a blessing. I may I say this. I thought we might get a little further today, but this is a good, good passage. God wants to bless you. He goes out of his way to find ways to bless you. This Christianity that thinks that he's always looking to withhold the blessing and he's always looking to hide his face from you. This is scary stuff, to be quite frank with you. And here's why it's scary. It teaches a mentality, and young people pick up on this, especially in ministry, as if you've got to go find God all the time. Now, there will be times when you might, you know, say, Lord, I, you know, I really want to fellowship with thee, know thee. But most of the time, it's actually violating the scripture to think you've got to go talk God into visiting with you, even in a church service. Here's what happens. If you decide what it feels like and looks like and tastes like for God to be in your midst, you will try to replicate that experience all the time. If you decide or somebody conditions you about what it's like inside of you to be content with whatever you're doing for God in his work, then you will always be on the verge of thinking it's not enough or you'll be in conflict. And it will open a person up to, really, to satanic warfare that they would be protected from if they would understand that God is trying to bless you. He wants to bless you. He would not have sent his son to suffer if he didn't. And he didn't make it hard on them, even under Moses' law. He gave them clear instructions so they wouldn't have to wonder, to doubt, to guess, to hope. And so I would say this, that one of the things that's a danger is that people are looking for a certain kind of blessing. Now, if you're a Bible believer, you're not looking to speak in some unknown tongue. You're not looking to have hallucinations or visions. You're not looking to raise the dead. That's one ditch on one side of the road. But if you're not careful as a Bible believer, You can look for manifestations of God's hand, manifestations of God's spirit that don't need to, you don't need to be looking for because that's not what he's trying to give you. He's trying to give you an internal peace, strength, and a confidence. I'm going to preach on soon on, on burdens and three words, bear your burden, share your burden, declare your burden. All very strong biblical foundations. What's the idea? The idea is I have to walk in what the word says, not in how I feel. So he says you should inherit a blessing. Well, next time, next class, we'll go into verse 10 and we'll move down through there. Now, may I say this to you? Okay. It is very important to remember that these things are what the first century Christians fed upon. These things are what the first century Christians lived by. And that's why they're so important. Father, pray take the time we've spent in this passage of Scripture.
and use it, I pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.